Hey, if you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 24? That's about mm, one quarter of the way in. Uh, we are in a series, of course, called The Poet King. We're on week four, talking really about the symphony of David's life. You know, he had some unbelievable highs and unbelievable lows. But really, um, the, uh, of course, he's the psalmist, but really the great song that David sings is just the story of his life. And um, there's just so much in it. And so I'm not getting through it as fast as I probably should be, but I'm just some of these stories are just so incredible, um, so I'm really excited uh, for this morning. A brief, uh, a brief illustration first. I grew up in the 80s and the 90s, unsurprisingly, and I grew up really in kind of the, it was, it was kind of just the height of the charismatic kind of um, spirit-filled uh, culture. And so one thing that I remember about growing up in that culture is this, uh, some of you would remember this too, is this idea of someone in a worship service having like a tongue, right? So they would be speaking and they would say something, uh, you know, in another language. You can read all about it in the New Testament, that they would say something in another language and then there would be someone else in the room and they would have like the interpretation of it. And it's a real holy thing. It's a real sacred thing. It can be really like a turning point for a lot of people. Uh, in their Christian walk. And if I'm being really honest, I think uh, it can also be really funny when it it goes awry and maybe the interpretation is like, that may or may not be the spirit. Um, And I always find it weird that uh, whenever whenever the Lord would speak in the 80s, that he always spoke in King James English. Does anybody find that weird? Like, so it usually started like, verily, verily, I say unto thee, or something like that. Uh, it, was, you know, it was good enough for the disciples, and so good enough for Jesus, good enough for us. <laughs> but there's a story, uh, uh, a story that a pastor friend tells that he was in a worship meeting, and there was, there was uh, like a prophetic word, and uh, the word was this, verily, uh, verily, I say unto thee, be ye not askeered, for I, the Lord your God, have also been askeared. Now, okay, two things. A, one, uh, askeared. While that may sound like uh, a really official sounding King James word for being afraid, that's actually not a word. And number two is the probably not so comforting notion of don't be afraid because I, the Lord, am also afraid. Right? Like, I, just, I just feel like if God's scared, you ought to be scared. Right, like if God, if God Himself is a skeered, then we're in pretty bad shape. Uh, but I think I think there's a lot of a lot of Christians that kind of are a skeered and uh, assume that we serve a God who is a skeered. Right, like we're we're upset and fearful about the way the world's going, and we assume that God's fearful and scared about the way the world's going. You know, we're terrified, so we assume. God's terrified. And in 1 Samuel chapter 24, we really see this really cool um, picture in the life of David where you can see uh, David feeling threatened from the outside. And then the question for David is this, will he leave it up to God 
to decide, or will, when he's threatened, will he take matters into his own hands? First Samuel 24 is one of my favorite stories uh, in the whole story arc of David, if I'm being perfectly honest, and you'll see why here in a minute. Verse one, I'm reading from the NIV. Oh, uh, so to catch you up, David has this amazing calling on his life, right? Samuel has come and he's anointed him to be king, but he doesn't, the only people that know that is Samuel and God, right? David doesn't know it, his family doesn't know it. And, um, but he's starting to, at this point in the story, he's starting to get kind of wind of what he has been anointed for. And so, of course, he defeated the mighty Philistine giant, uh, Goliath. And now what you have to understand is that Saul, the current king, has become hell-bent on killing, murdering David and his men. He has become absolutely bloodthirsty. And so as a result of it, he's, he's starting to lose his mind. And as a result of this, uh, David and his men are in hiding. They're hiding away in a cave. That's the setting. Verse one, after Saul, P.S., didn't you guys love Havilah last week? I wanted to say, I loved Havilah. Thank you guys for being here. Um, yeah, amazing. I love strong women. And I double love strong women in church. I think it is a, I think it is, I feel really bad actually for churches who in an attempt to follow uh, scripture end up misunderstanding uh, scripture and pushing down women in ministry. That's a real bummer. So I loved Havila. Thank you guys for coming. We thought it was a really fun, really fun weekend. Women's conference, amazing. Verse one, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Paul took 3,000 young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. So uh, if you can, uh, this is a great setup. Uh, Basically, Saul is wanting to kill David. He gets wind that David is that way. And so he gets 3,000 men to follow after him to try to kill David. That feels like overkill, right? Like how many people did we send to, you know, kill Osama bin like this tiny little group? 3,000 just seems like a bit excessive. Uh, so he, he does that, but then he finds him, himself in front of a cave and he goes into the cave to, quote, relieve himself. Now, we don't need to get into like the number system as far as precisely what he was doing in there, but we, we just know that it took a while because there's this whole conversation between David and his men that, that it's happening behind Saul as he's whatever, relieving himself. Uh, and keep in mind, this was before phones, you know, so like some of us men, especially, we can spend a lot of time in the bathroom just playing on our phones, for being honest. Uh, so this was before phone, but clearly whatever he was doing was taking a while. Okay. That was really awkward, wasn't it? <laughs> Verse four. <laughs> My wife can tell you all about the, the, the bathroom thing, by the way. I, I think the, it's like, if you got paid in there, we would be millionaires. Well, that's probably true. <laughs> I know. It's my sanctuary. 
Verse four, the men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy. So this is the men talking to David, right? This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. In a few verses, it will become clear that what the advice was, was not some vague, do whatever you'd like with him, but it was absolutely, David, you should kill Saul. And I want you to appreciate for a moment just what good advice that actually is, right? Like this is, this is there's not a lawyer in the world that wouldn't say, oh, that's just that's self-defense. You know, like, I mean, clearly he has brought 3,000 men to kill you and not just you, but kill all your men too. So it could be in a way you could look at if David were to go and kill Saul, who the Lord has delivered to him, it would almost be viewed by a lot of people as an act of courage. Right to kill to kill Saul and in in so doing sparing the most lives, right? But look what uh, happens. Uh, verse uh, okay. Um, oh no, I wanted to say this. Uh, also note that it's a theological argument, right? That they come in and they and they say the Lord delivered him into your hands, right? So it wasn't just by chance. This is God's doing. Uh, I love the saying that it's not paranoia if they really are out to get you, right? That is true for David that, that he wasn't making it up. Saul was absolutely out to kill him. The second part of verse four, then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. What? Why would he do? No, no throat slit, no rock, like he just cuts off a tiny piece of his robe. So a couple things. Number one is this, it's sort of like a warning shot, right? So he's, he's essentially telling Saul, just so you know, I could have killed you. And two, it's kind of a way to uh, humiliate him, right? That he's, he, we, we know that he was indisposed and we were there messing with him. Uh, verse five, afterward, this is amazing. David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. That's incredible. So not only did he not kill Saul, he felt bad for humiliating the guy who was out to kill him, right? It's, it's, I think that's a pretty amazing um, thing. Verse six, and this is where it pays off. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. Listen to this phrase, the Lord's anointed or lay my hand on him for he is the anointed of the Lord. It's also worth noting that, you know, seven chapters before we have already read it in this series. It is clear that God has already rejected Saul as king. But to David, this man that is in this position of authority is the, the Lord's anointed. So not only is he not going to kill him, he feels bad for disrespecting him and he calls him the Lord's anointed. Verse seven, with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Paul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul. I think this is funny. Saul eventually leaves and David runs out after him. Saul, he just couldn't, couldn't hide any longer. My Lord and the King. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He, David said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? Me, like I'm not out to harm you. This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Who, who delivered it? The Lord, right? The Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. 
I said, I will not lay my hand on the Lord, uh, on my Lord, because it is the Lord's anointed. P.S. If you're ever confused on Lords and Lord, and just look at the capitalization, at least in the NIV. See, my father took at, um, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. And this is amazing. Verse 12, this is David to Saul. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evil doers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom, and he's pleading again, against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? Talking about himself. A dead dog, a flea? Verse 15, pay attention to this. May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. It's amazing. 16, when David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. No, Saul has not been temporarily like become blind or something like that. David, like trying to feel people's faces. No, he, he, that's another Saul. Another Saul in another story becomes temporarily blind. But I do think that Saul, you'll see in different parts of his story, how he's able to maybe briefly see with the eyes that he used to see from before he went insane, essentially. Uh, when David finished saying this, I'll ask, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be a be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. So this is a big movement for David and that Saul himself is recognizing that he is about to be replaced by David. Verse 21, now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. So that's a lot of text, but I think the movement is pretty simple, right? What, what happens is this, David is in hiding because Saul is trying to kill him and Saul gets a tip that, that David is that away. And so he gets 3000 men to go and hunt for David. While they're hunting, Saul goes in to use the restroom in the cave where David and his men are hiding. David has the opportunity to kill Saul, but in, not only does he not kill him, he cuts off the little piece of his robe and he feels guilty even for humiliating him. And he comes out and he, re, and he repents. Um, and he refers to Saul, the king, the wicked king, multiple times as, quote, the Lord's anointed. And so um, if you don't understand how amazing that is, then I'm not telling it right, right? Like that, that, is, that is so opposite of what you see in the United States in 2018, right? Like David was perfectly justified in killing Saul 
perfectly, right? Like I, it would be self-defense. There's not a lawyer in the world that wouldn't totally say that David was in the right. Not only was he sparing his life, he was sparing the life of his men. But not only does he not kill him, he actually feels guilty for even humiliating uh, the wicked king. And he refers to him many, multiple times over as, quote, the Lord's anointed. I think it points to two really important things that apply to you in very direct way, 2019. So if you're taking notes, write these two things down. Number one is this, David honored God by honoring the king, even though the king was out to get him. Right, and I, th- I think that, I think it takes an amazing amount of trust in order to do that. Can you, can you imagine this? The amount that David has to trust God from when he feels threatened to not take matters into his own hands, but to instead trust that God is the one that's going to do the judging and God's going to be the one who does uh, the vindicating. And that's, that's pretty tough, especially when you feel like you're attacked. I don't know if anyone feels, ever feels like God is not appropriately panicked at the thing that's causing you to panic, right? Like, and you can actually read about this in the Psalms where David says like, God, don't you, don't you even care? Like, how long are you going to wait to act? And so you can see this. And so when you feel this, the temptation is incredibly strong then for you to take that thing that is maybe on God's plate, to take it off of his plate and place it back on your, your own. Especially, and hear me here, especially when it looks like it's a God-given opportunity. Right, But for David, and maybe for you, what looks like an opportunity might really be a temptation. Um, and, and again, Saul was a threat, right? Like he, like he was, but it, it, but it just wasn't up to David, right? Just that, that wasn't his job to point out who is and is not a threat. It was David's job that no matter what, I'm just going to bless the king, right? There's no, there's no question in the text that Saul was wrong and David uh, was in the right, but that's just not where David was. He was just focused on what his job was, and that was to honor the king. Uh, and, and I think I, I'll talk to people and they'll say something like, you know, I'm just trying to stand up for Jesus. Well, look, what if Jesus didn't tell you to make that stand, friend? Like, what, what, if, what if the way that you stand up for Jesus is by honoring and loving the king, you know what I mean? David understands Saul to be an authority that's been placed over him by God, even though Saul is operating in an evil way. But he understands him to be authority that's been placed over him by God. And if you don't get that, my fear for you is that you're gonna spend a whole lot of your life raging against stuff that ultimately you have no control over, right? And you might be thinking, well, that's just, that's Old Testament, brother, Okay, well, if you think that, then let me encourage you to go home and read Romans chapter 13. Paul goes to great length to tell us not only to submit to spiritual leaders, but to submit to those in authority in government, to submit to law enforcement, that that it's not just something that you do based on how they are. Like there's no ambiguity in the text. Unless they're bad, unless they're, do, like it's just, it's just you honor them, right? Is, is what Paul uh, says, And I, I just think that there's so many Christians sitting around trying to decide whether or not Saul is right. You know, it's like, congratulations, friend. You don't even have to figure that out. Right. Let me ask you this question. Let's say, let's say Saul is wrong. What are you going to do different? Uh, uh, kill him. Well, 
Nope. Well, I'm going I'm to I'm write snarky stuff about him on Facebook. Well, no. And like, look, I have lived on this planet for, I checked with my wife because I didn't remember in first service, going on 37 years. I'm old enough to not know how old I am, so that's pretty old. Uh, and I haven't always worked at a church, so I understand just like you, to this feeling of being underneath somebody and you feel like you have understanding that they don't have and they don't see it in the right way and that you have some sort of wisdom that they don't, like I understand all of that. And I know that we all know the feeling of having David's men around you whispering in your ear, you know, you're, you're so right. You're so right about that guy. He has always been out to get you. And we just want you to know that we're behind you, that we have your back. Listen, that is the voice of the devil, right? (laughs) That voice that comes in and strokes your ego in just the right way that makes you feel justified in, in your, like that is the voice of the devil. And you might be thinking, well, what if the authority is wrong? Well, what if it's not up to you? Right? Like, like what if your job is to bless and to honor Saul, even at his worst, right? And I think there's a lot of Christians who will say like, well, I will, I will do that and I will, honor, I will honor Saul as long as Saul begins to change. Well, what if he doesn't change? Like, what, what are you gonna do? To, just because he doesn't change doesn't mean your assignment changed, right? Just because, just because he doesn't change doesn't mean that you get to change, from what you were called uh, to do. And I, th- I think it's just such a big concept. And I can even sense for, for maybe for some of you, just like myself, I can see, yeah, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? Okay, so here's all of my disclaimers. I am most certainly not saying that you can't stand up against injustice. You can and we must. But hear me, especially you wonderful young people, there is a way to stand up against injustice without belittling, without dehumanizing, without demeaning. And if you're thinking, I'm going to need an example of that, no problem. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., right? An amazing man for a couple different reasons. One of them was this, that he dedicated his life, not a perfect man, but a great man, dedicated his life to fighting both systemic and personal racism, right? But what's really amazing, at least to me, is, is how he did that. Right? And how unbelievably kind and generous he was to even his oppressors. Right? In fact, uh, check out this. This is just some of his writing I think is so amazing. Dr. King says this, Time is cluttered with the wreckage of communities which surrendered into hatred and violence. We are going to follow another way. Hear it. We will not abandon our righteous efforts. With every ounce of our strength, we will continue to rid the nation of the incubus of segregation. Now pay attention. But we will not in the process relinquish our privilege and our obligation to love. While abhorring segregation, we will love the segregationist. This is the only way to build the beloved community. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall meet your physical force with soul force. Listen to this. Do to us what you will, and we will continue to love you. Throw us in jail, we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community and beat us, and we will still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down. 
One day we will win freedom, but not only for ourselves, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process. So our victory will be a double victory. Do you see how different that is than anything that you see in 2009? Who's doing that? Nobody. Show me a group that's doing that. That stands up for what they believe and also working and, and explicitly talking about their love for the people they're opposing no matter what. It, it's, it's so unbelievably different. And so I need you to hear me, especially wonderful young people. It's not just about what you stand for. It's how you stand for it. Right? That's why, that's why of course, we have, we have Dr. King and we also have, let's say, Malcolm X. Right? Probably some very similar um, desired end results but very different ways of going about it. And one of them, I would argue, the reason that Dr. King continues to have a legacy the way that he does is not just what he stood for, but how he stood for it. Like, you know, you can be on the right side of something and still be wrong. You know that, right? Like you, you, can, be, you can be right and still be the wrongest person in the room. You just can be. Because it's not just what you stand for, it's also how you stand for it. So are you ready for me to talk real? Okay, I'm going to cut all the baloney and be real with you for a second. Okay, so um, we currently have a president that, like every president, is simultaneously loved and hated. That, I don't know why you let that surprise you, right? Like, that happens every time. You know, every four years, half of the nation's delighted and half of the nation calls the guy, like, the Antichrist or, or um, Hitler, you know what I mean? Like, like Hitler, if you're secular, Antichrist, if you're Christian. I feel like we get, uh, I feel like we get uh, Hitler, Antichrist every four years, a new one. It's exhausting. And people are like, well, we, were, we didn't mean it before. This one. But you know, it's, it's always like, it, it's just not surprising. And so my point in all of this is not to argue with you on if this person's right or this person's right or such and such is right about this, such and such is right about that. This, this is a sermon that's not about any of that. This is a sermon about whether you will kill Saul or you will bless Saul, right? And that's the question for you. I don't know why or where people, where people got the idea as Christians, that if someone's in the public eye, then they're an exemption from the way that you know you're supposed to treat people, right? Like, where is that? That, you know, like, okay, I know that I'm supposed to love people. I'm supposed to forgive people. I'm supposed to speak respectfully. I'm supposed to bless and everything that I do is supposed to be what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Unless you're the president, Cut your head off on Facebook. You know what I mean? Like there's just, we just feel like there's this exemption if people are famous. And I think that that's really crazy. And I want to say this. I actually think, um, and not in some theoretical way, like I actually think this. I think that you're going to have to give an account for every idle word you speak. Like for real. You know, like I, I honestly think that some of you, I honestly think, I honestly think this, is this hysterical? I really believe this, that some of you are going to have a conversation with Jesus about what you've posted on Facebook. I think that. Like, I really think it's gonna be a one-on-one conversation, right? And I don't think he's gonna like send you into the fiery pit of hell for all of a term, but I do think he's gonna talk to you about it. 
right? Like I, I actually, I actually think that. That's one of the reasons that I respect this church the way that I do is every four years, if you're new, you, you probably don't know this, but whenever there's a new administration that comes, we gather together in this room and we pray for the leadership and not that they would like wake up and, you know, like stop being such an idiot. It's none of that. Like we pray that God would bless them, right? We pray that God would bless their family. We pray that God keeps their family strong, that, that God would bring people around them that can, that can help them and, and lead them in the right path and lead them in the right wisdom. But we bless leadership here. Like we, and that's, that is not, um, I wish I could say that was true of all churches. It's not, it's not. Right, like, like, it's so easy to to become like the world in this stuff. And I guess for me, what I want to say is, it, it becomes so easy uh, to be the kind of person that just blames Saul for everything. You know what I mean? Where it's like, well, hey, what's the problem? You know, and it's, it's the whole idea of scapegoating that we've talked about a million times. Like the idea of us uniting around who we oppose. You know, it's like, well, I hate the boss. You hate the boss. Well, let's be best friends. Right, or like I hate the president, and you hate the president. Let, let's be roommates. You know, it's just like this demonic tendency to like unite not around what we believe in or what we even hope for, but what we oppose. And it's a really horrible thing. And if you're not careful, that can be the thing that you orient your life around. I talk to people like that um, all the time. I think a much better posture is this: No matter what, I'm going to love you. No matter what. And I'm not going to dishonor you. I'm not going to disrespect you. Uh, no matter what, even if you're my enemy, I'm going to love you. Love your enemies. Like, where have I heard that before? So, so and that's true. Let's say that like this. No matter your opinion, you are called to bless those in authority. You are. Like, that's not, that's not debatable. It, you know, you find three scripture, like, trust me. You are called to honor the people in authority. And that's true for government, right? That's true for spiritual leaders. I hate to tell you, I think this applies to your boss for a lot of you. You know what I mean? Like you, you honor people, not even for their own sake, but for the sake of worshiping God, right? That, that David, David sees this wicked king and he says, this is the Lord's anointed. And he, he serves Saul and he loves Saul, not because of what Saul did or did not do, but simply because he was a man in authority and that was his way of honoring God. And you, can I tell you, I think one thing that's really hard about honoring people is that you don't, you don't get to play the martyr. <laughs> you know, like, like it's so, it's so, it's so easy. Everybody loves to just have the sweet, sappy story about like how wronged you were, you know, and, and how bad it's just like, oh, it's just that pastor at that church. They're all about money, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, it feels really cool to be like the martyr and, and, and thinking about and understanding um, our tendency to always just use that as um, a platform. I just think it's a horrible way to live. I'll tell you something that I do not do, which is this, if you know this, when you work at a church, there's lots of people, people who work at churches know this, that um, there's a lot of people who come to your church and, well, you're the greatest thing that's ever. And then there's people who leave your church and you're like the biggest turd in the entire universe, right? And they post about it on Facebook. Like that's just called ministry, right? 
People write mean emails and blah, blah. Like that's just how it works. Let me tell you something that I don't do. And it's this, like, if, if there's a conflict, I don't go to the people involved and say, hey, you know what? I just want you to hear my side of the story. I don't ever do that. Like, I, I don't need you to hear my side of the story. I don't operate like I'm in the seventh grade. Like that's, that's how kids do it. Like, I don't, I don't need, I don't need you to be on my side. Just think about what David said. David says this, the Lord will vindicate me. Who will? The Lord will. The Lord will vindicate me. So you don't need to be in the self-vindicating business. I need to move on. This message is pretty awful. You guys are doing really good. I love you. You all feel like, you all, y'all look like I spanked you. The second one's better. And it's short. Okay, number two is this. David understood that being right is not always the most important thing. Um, I, I do think it's worth mentioning that we're not always as right as we think we are, right? Like, don't tell me that you have never been the person who, uh, who like, you're positive about something, you know, and you're telling everybody about it and you're super confident. And then you learn like one new piece of information and you learn that like, you're the turkey, like, don't tell me that hasn't ever happened to you. you. You oftentimes are right, and other times you are just like less right. <laughs> if you know that. Uh, and so, so for um, even, even the times that we are right, though, I think um, we just have to remember that sometimes appearing right in other people's eyes is not the most important thing, right? Like, uh, I'll give you a very strange, weird, obscure example. Um, Long ago, there was a man who was walking towards his own brutal torture and execution by cross. And then he was put in front of the authorities and given the opportunity to defend himself. Asked very direct questions about what he was doing and the charges that were being put against him. And this man did not say a word. Right? I mean, would, would he have been right to defend himself? Yeah. But he understood. There's sometimes there's something that's more important than being right. Right? He, there was something bigger going on. And I think that that's so true um, for so many of us that we, I think we can especially get this righteous indignation in us that's like being right in this particular conversation is absolutely the, the most important thing. And you don't realize all the destruction that you cause with your own stubbornness, right? And I think it's one thing that's amazing about David here that even up to Saul's dying breath, anytime he has an encounter with Saul, you know what he does? He tells Saul, I have always loved you and I, and I honor you and I respect you. Like he'll do that every single time. And I think there's something that's really um, maybe beautiful and sad about that, that until Saul's dying breath, David was always there as a, as a witness to the love of God to Saul, right? And, and even in, despite his madness and confusion, that if you can see the story, you can see that throughout all of that, his horrible behavior, there was still God's, God reaching towards him with love and hope through someone who said, no matter what, I will not dishonor you, right? That's where God was able to work. And I would actually argue this, that, that when you say, I'm, I'm done with the dishonoring business, right? Like I'm, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna honor people. It's gonna be, I'm gonna, 
I'm gonna do it. Doesn't mean I can't have opinions. Doesn't mean I can't stand up for what's right, but I don't need to slander, right? I don't need to keep slamming people. I would argue that you actually become so much more usable by God that he can come in and and he can reach to people um, through your willingness uh, to show kindness where other people wouldn't show kindness. And we can go ahead and get ready for communion. Uh, I have, (laughs) this is the stupidest closing that I've ever done in my entire life, possibly. Are you ready? Okay. So um, I've told you this before, but I do not particularly um, consider myself a, like a particularly holy man. You know, like I don't walk around with a halo and, you know, read the scripture like 33 hours a day, like some of these preachers do. Like I'm a regular dude, all, like all the way. I watch TV, I watch movies, I play video games in the bathroom. Like I, I'm a regular, I'm a regular dude. Um, and I also don't consider myself um, a particularly eloquent person. Um, I was laughing with my friends this past week that, that uh, Pastor Marshall and Cindy, when they come up uh, on stage, I just feel like everything they do is so gosh darn polished all the time. You know, like zero us, zero, uh, and, and I'm up here like stuttering and being all sporadic and weird. It's just, I'm fine with it. It's just, it's just kind of who I am. But here's my point. Um, so I don't consider myself particularly holy and I don't consider myself particularly eloquent, but I do think I'm smart. Like I just do. <laughs> I just, that's what I honestly think about myself. I, think, I just think I am smart. Like I think I have good things to say. I think I have perspective. I think I'm able to see things from both sides in a way that makes me maybe kind of wise. And so I, so I it's funny, but I, I just think that I am smart. Like that's what I think about myself, which is hysterical. Um, and so, so for me, when I, when I see when I see there's like a conversation happening or there's an argument or something, I'm just feeling like, yes, this is an opportunity for me to show how brilliant I am. You know what I mean? Like I'm gonna go blow these people's mind. Like these idiots aren't gonna know what hit them. (sighs) I, I just, I picture them like sitting at home saying like, man, Pastor David, he's so young, but so wise. That's me. It's like, man, he, he doesn't wear a coat and he doesn't have a PhD, but man, I love it when he talks smart. Like, that's what I, that's what I think about myself. <laughs> now that I'm saying that, I'm hoping I'm not the only one who thinks that about themselves. Do you guys think you're smart about stuff? <laughs> it's about 50-50, okay. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, and so, so for me, my, my point is this, that that's precisely why a message like this is so offensive to someone like me. You know what I mean? Because like the, the idea that God would come and he would tell me to like, hey, in this particular sh- scenario, just shut up. Like, but God, this is an opportunity for me to teach these people. And more importantly, look really smart. Uh, but the idea, but I'm, I'm trying to learn, I guess, I think I'm slowly learning the distinction between being smart and being wise. And I think there's something that I'm learning that smart people sometimes don't know that wise people do know. And that's this, sometimes the best thing to say is nothing, right? And that's hard. That's hard for someone like me. But the idea of like, man, I've got an opinion about that, but it's fine, right? I, 
there's something more important to me than being right about that issue. I think you could like, honestly, some of you, it would do you good to get in front of a mirror and practice saying this. I don't have an opinion about that. That's it. That'd be like really great. Like practice. I don't have an opinion about that. Hey, what do you think about? I don't have an opinion about that. Or, and, or if I do have an opinion, this is not the place uh, for it. I think it's a, um, I think it's a very brilliant thing to know the wisdom in sometimes not just what to say, but what to not say. I think it's a beautiful thing that we can pick up from the life of Jesus, right? You think about Jesus, there's a ton of times where people come and they ask, ask him really direct questions. They're looking for a position, right? Jesus, what do you think about blah? And you know what he does? He's like, terrible, right? I think that's hysterical. I would love if you guys, you know, like someone comes to you, asks you a question, looking for a position and you don't feel like it's the time. How about a parable, right? Or how about another question that reframes, that reframes the issue? But you see that with Jesus all the time, right? And that he's, he's not always as concerned with being right about a situation than I think sometimes we are. I think some of you, instead of maybe spending so much time on what your position is, maybe you can think about spending a little more time on your story, right? That maybe instead of a position, what you need is to tell people what God did for you. You know, like, hey, I'm not gonna argue with you on creation versus evolution, but I can tell you how Jesus saved me from a life of fear. That I can talk to you about. Like that, that's actually something that matters. And again, I would, I would try, I would plead with you that that's actually a better way to bring about real change. Like, like, like we live in this culture that is consumed with blame and accusation. Everyone is blaming somebody for like, this is why I am the way that I am. This is why the nation is the way that it is because of these people. This is why the world is the way that it is because of these people. I'm, I'm suggesting a different way and it's something that I'm entitling for this sermon, uh, the ministry of cool. And by that, I don't mean that like you all start wearing skinny jeans and scarves and stuff, just get ridiculously hip. No, cool as in, cool as in um, unrattled, you know? Just, just, having a, a, just having a centeredness in yourself where you're not a scared because you believe that God's not a scared. And he's the one who's gonna be sorting everything out. Nobody's getting away with nothing. So just chill, right? Like I, I don't need to be the person who's right. I'm gonna be the person who's sane, right? <laughs> because sometimes what people need is not just another opinion in the conversation, but they need someone who can bring the presence of God into the situation and bring real peace. I don't always need to be right, but I am gonna be the person who's sane in this conversation. And I think that God could really use some of you in, in a way that maybe he's not right now because you're too obsessed with always spewing your opinion at everything and everyone all the time, thinking you're making a profound difference. It doesn't, trust me. You know, like it's, it's, just, it's, just not, it's just not true. And so learning to not talk is a beautiful, brilliant gift. Places that this is true. Um, work, certainly, right? Um, how about, Lord knows, marriage, 
right? Learning to maybe not say what you could have said. Like if Jordan corrected me every time I did something stupid, like that'd be like a full-time job for her. There wouldn't be any time for anything else. You know, so like that's, that's maybe what God would use a message like this in for some of you married folk is for you to learn to not be someone who dishonors your spouse and in so doing brings new life uh, into your marriage. Y'all know that I think that this is true on Facebook, right? Like I don't wanna keep, I don't wanna be the guy who always harps on Facebook like I'm, I feel old enough. <laughs> but uh, I, just, I just think total, total people uh, who change political affiliation based on a snarky pace, Facebook post, zero, right? Nobody changes their opinion on politics because you post some sarcastic comment on Facebook, right? Like you're about as likely to convert them as they are to convert you, which is not very likely, right? So instead you can actually do something that matters by, by not being the right one, but being the sane one being the person who brings something that really matters um, into the conversation. Uh, and you can make a positive difference. Here's the question that I have for you this morning, then we'll take communion. <laughs> this message was really kind of weird. Okay, in what ways am I dishonoring to others? Oh, of others. In what ways am I dishonoring of others? That's the question, simple, right? Not in what ways um, do people dishonor me God can sort that out. In what ways are you dishonoring of others, right? Uh, maybe you would allow me to connect the dots here. I think for, for some of you, maybe it's someone or someones at work, right? Maybe, maybe for some of you, it's people with a different political worldview than you currently have, right? And I mean, honestly, if you paint the other side and you like use these derogatory terms that, you know, when talking about 350 million people, like you need to repent of that. There's, there's, there's almost nothing that you can say that would be true for 350 million people. <laughs> you know what I mean? They all want, trust me, there's no way. Right, and so, so just just finding a way towards. Look, I have my opinion; they have their opinion. We're not, but but I'm not going to dishonor you, right? I'm not going to speak disrespectfully of you. Maybe, like I said, maybe it's your spouse, right? And God would use this opportunity to teach you how to honor your spouse in front of them and in front of other people. Maybe it's a public figure, right? Like, I, I just think it's worth remembering, even, even for me, sometimes I, I feel like I need to back up out of the controversy and remember something that's real basic. But it's this, that it's like you think about President Trump or you think about Nancy Pelosi or you think about George W. Bush or you think about Hillary Clinton. Like, listen, before any of those people are presidents or senators or Congress people, like before any of that, those are God's kids, right? Made in his image, just like you. And, and being made in the image of God deserves a certain amount of your respect. It does. Just because they're famous doesn't mean you can just do whatever you want with them. You're talking about God's kids. Okay, whoo. I'll close this, so I'll stop talking. But... Um, 
I wonder if you, if you would, you know, we're gonna pass communion elements here in just a minute, but just, just the idea of um, always, always needing to um, just always say your opinion. I think that's such a profound um, thing that some of you need to really hear, this idea of like more than being right, I wanna be someone who's honoring of people. And so just, if you would, as we pass communion, just let maybe God speak into that. Let him show maybe things that you have in your own heart, um, places that you have room to grow when it comes to the idea of dishonor. Um, and then once you all get the communion elements, we will receive them together. Thank you, guys.
Okay, the communion invitation is on the screen. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come, because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. So come to the table. Allow me to pray for you. Father, today, I wanna pray for all my brothers and sisters here in in the room that I think in a a lot of ways, uh, something like this ends up being kind of tender for people. It really kind of accesses maybe some different parts of us, of our interior lives that we um, prefer to keep you out of, I guess. Uh, And right now, I would pray that you would give all of my precious friends in here, just the, just the courage and the strength to open up every part of themselves to you and to your influence. Like when it comes to how I am at work, how I am with people, what I think, what I do, what I say. Like, Jesus, you, you have authority in all of those things. Like, you, you just tell me what to do and, and I'll do it. And so help us, Lord. We, we know that what you want from us is to be people that use our words to bless and to not kill. And so forgive us for all the times that we mess up on that and we, we buy into the way of the world. We buy into the way of accusation and scapegoating. Instead of just saying, no matter what, I will love the people that you have given me. And so give us, give us the strength to do that. Uh, and also just continue to work in our hearts to, to be continually motivated to be your representatives in the world, right? That, that when we're out there and we're talking or we're typing or we're, I don't know, anything, we're acting, we're not, we're not just doing that when it comes like on behalf of ourselves. Like we're, we're literally representing you to the world. And with that comes a certain level of, I don't know, seriousness, um, when it comes to how we conduct ourselves, And so show us that and give us the strength to do better. So we say thank you, Lord. We thank you so much, of course, for your grace that makes it all possible. None of this is doable in our own strength, but instead we rely on you uh, to teach us and to shape us and to form us. And for that, we say thank you. And Jesus, as we come to your table, we simply say thank you for everything that you've done and everything that you are. We know that this is not an earned it thing. This is just a free gift thing. And so we say thank you for including us. Thank you for remembering us. And thank you for always saving a place for us at your table. We love you. So Jesus, we remember your death and we proclaim your resurrection and we await your return. Let's eat the bread and drink from the cup.